Don't Wreck Yourself features words and situations that are not appropriate for young listeners. This show is only for adults and unsupervised juvenile delinquents of exquisite taste and refinement. Each week, Matt and Ryan look into claims they find online, answer your questions, and say bad words! Now your way is the only way, and my way is the only way to Fill the space between a hard place and a rock is all we do but we'll entertain the conversation that leads us to the truth. What do we know? What trips to telephones that are no different to you? Welcome to Don't Wreck Yourself. My name's Ryan Placetti, and I'm here to help you untangle the Gordian knot of the internet's bullshit. And I'm Matt Saintsing, and I'm going to resolve. I'm going to try to not say the F word at all during this episode because I've I've been listening to myself and I think I say it a little too much. I was actually going to tell you that before we started recording and I completely forgot. So I'm glad you brought that note. Yeah, I it's a a note for myself. I'm just listening to episodes and I'm like, man, if I if I didn't know anything about me, I would say that Matt has a limited vocabulary and nothing could be further from the truth. And if you're Matt's mom listening, I apologize for not bringing it to his attention sooner. But, you know, when you edit, you're editing in in little chunks and sometimes you don't you're not clicking your fuck clicker. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) No promises, but we'll see what I can do. We're not keeping it clean. So for those of you who are who find swearing like sailors endearing, we're going to keep doing that. (laughs) I would say we're definitely not going to keep it clean because we would have just wasted the money we hired for that voiceover actor to give the caveat at the very beginning of our episodes. I mean, I guess we could hire her again and have her change the caveat, but I don't know that we have a warning to put up there then. I was just trying to make a joke. I wasn't trying to. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm serious. Like, what would our disclaimer be if uh... I'm I, I'm not prepared to answer that question because I was prepared to only make a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't want to engage you on this topic because I don't have notes for that. <laughs> but I do have notes on something. I recently saw a meme on Facebook. Uh, it was a picture of a man who appears to be in his 60s with a cane at the top of which appears to be a hip bone. Okay. And uh, the caption is, uh, my dad got his hip bone replaced and had the doctor save it so he could turn it into a cane. And I'll be honest, it it looks pretty badass. All right. It's like kind of a Keith Richards and Pirates of the Caribbean cameo moment. There is something special, I think, about, you know, having a walking stick or a cane and having your literal hip bone at the top, almost like almost like a ball peen hammer, just is what it looks like, just clutching it. I decided to look into this and see if one, it's even possible. And two, is it this guy's real hip bone? I think that's a fair question, especially since we've already determined on this podcast that if you ask for part of your body back, the doctors have to give it to you. That was in in the case that we discussed previously. That was because a guy got into a motorcycle accident and then invited his friends over for feet tacos. Yeah. And that's that was actually from the first episode of our podcast. I know. If you haven't listened to that yet, go ahead and check it out. Uh, But you're right. We have previously covered here on Don't Wreck Yourself. The doctors do have to give back removed amputated body parts. Um, So it stands the reason that this is at least plausible until you look into the specifics of hip replacements. Okay, I haven't had my hip replaced yet, so I'm, I'm completely open to you telling me about the entire experience. I don't have a hip replacement either, but I do feel like a pretty hip guy, if I do say so myself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So the image was posted from from 2015. It's made it it made its way on Pinterest. Rest rest in peace. Rest in rest in Pinterest. And on Reddit, actually, from 2015, where a commenter by the name of OrthoMD has some doubts. 
And since we know it is impossible to misrepresent yourself online, it seems legit that this guy's an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah, just like me. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm ortho Matt, right? Yeah. yeah. Last week I was an ornithopter. This week I'm a uh, bone doctor. Because your hip bone's connected to the bone bone. And just before we get any corrections, I know the difference between an ornithopter and an ornithologist. It was a joke. What's ornithopter? I've never heard that before. I know ornithologist is. Uh, it's like uh, the Leonardo da Vinci helicopter. Like the gyro- gyrocopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind yeah, of like yeah. that. Orthothopter sounds like it's a bird flying a helicopter. So <laughs> That's fucking dope. Uh, yeah, it'd be cool. They don't, they don't need the helicopter, but I'm sure the insurance is cool. No, so uh, the orthopedic doctor is under the impression that it is very likely to have not happened. He says the bone could be a real one, but he is assuredly not OP's dad's bone. Okay, uh, how would we know that? So the photo shows the whole lot of the bone. And when you look into hip replacements, I, I googled total hip replacement. I, I'm just going to guess. Is it just the tip? No, it's the whole bone. Oh, you mean like the, the, the actual hip replacement? The actual hip replacement procedure. No, I don't. I don't know what the tip of the hip bone is. It'd be uh, the t- ball. It'd be the ball on the joint. I got gotcha. you. Um, I, so I think it depends. But when so much of the bone is removed, it looks infected or, or it fractures. This bone atop of the cane just looks pristine. Right. Mm-hmm. So the doctor was saying you would never take away that much bone and it would look so well. It looks like a medical book. There would be absolutely no reason to perform the procedure if the bone looked that good. A- absolutely. Absolutely. And this bone looks pristine. It looks like it could be synthetic or, or carved out of something. And we'll get to that in, in, in a second. All right. It looks like something you see at a doctor's office, you know, fake body parts like diagrams you mess with, you know, or at Party City or the Halloween spirit store. What a great store. I think that's going to be a bygone era. We're going to. Years from now, we're going to look back on the Halloween stores that like it was like masks only used to cost a nickel and you could go down the store and get one. <laughs> what was it? Towards the beginning of the pandemic, when businesses started shutting down, the joke was they were all just going to turn into spirit Halloween stores. So you brought up artificial means of creating this cane, but there's also the possibility that it's real bone. Not really. I'll tell you why right now. We are absolutely right that when you request a body part, the doctor has to give it to you. However, when you're talking about getting your own bones, that is an t- entirely different process, right? The office has to certify the bone has been sterilized. And that is an arduous process that so you can retain the anatomy without screwing up the structure. And it's something most doctor's offices just do not have the ability okay. to do. Here would be my counterpoint to that. Uh, and that is that it can still be real human bone without belonging to the person who owns the cane, which for me, if I'm going to own a bone cane, I would prefer it to be somebody else's bones. Yeah, well, it stands the reason that if you have a total hip replacement, this much hip, you probably need a yeah. cane, right? So it's definitely pl- definitely plausible. Uh, but when you talk about sterilizing bones, uh, this only really happens in cadaver labs. From what I was looking into, it, it's very rare uh, and they don't want to risk the infection. So it's actually a liability for a doctor's office to give someone their own bone back. Right? Yeah, uh, so I'm actually reminded of a story of the original Poltergeist movie. There's a scene uh, towards the end of the film where there are a bunch of bones where they're like literally get like getting sucked into the ground or something uh, and like they fall and they come like face to face with the skeleton. Those were actually real bones in that scene. Yeah, really? Wow, that is great trivia. I did not know that. I, I, I heard that story straight from the horse's mouth. Craig T. Nelson came to visit us at the Defense Language Institute in California and he told that story. Craig Tiberius Nelson. First captain of <laughs> The conservative enterprise, which is like the regular enterprise, but everybody has to pull themselves up by their bootstraps instead of using a turbo lift. I think, we, I think conservative enterprise, we just call it the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> conservative enterprise never gets off the ground. 
No. <laughs> they're always yeah. They're too busy cutting taxes. They can't. They can't, can't fund, fund the program. The program. Not yeah. worthwhile. So it is probably not accurate that it is his own bone. It is possible that it is a bone, yeah. but I really have my doubts. I think it's probably a, a piece of really well carved wood, or it could be scrimshaw, right? It could be like a whalebone. It, it could be. I think the most likely scenario is that it is an artificial mold of an existing bone. If it is a real bone, there are for a long time, there were they were called uh, resurrection men. Hmm. Corpse thievery was actually a huge issue in the 16th, 17th, 18th and 19th century because it was a taboo to actually perform autopsies and the supply of suitable educational material was short. So in a lot of cases, researchers, doctors and educators would pay people to steal corpses. There are bodies floating around that could potentially be sourced for this. Final assessment. Um, You bring up a great point, though, about grave robbing. And I always like to bring that. I think it's a hilarious tip. I guess it's not a tip. You should never rob graves. You should not rob graves. Wink, wink. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless unless you're unless you want to hang out with me between the hours of two and four a.m. Unless you are a prestigious learned doctor, robbing graves is bad. I think it's definitely illegal. So while fun, I do not think that this meme is real. Sorry, but if you come across this, don't wreck yourself. I wager that it is a piece of plastic or almost like a cast of a bone. I am in full agreement with you. I think the likelihood of it being an actual human bone is far less than the likelihood of it being just an artificial mold from the Spirit Halloween store. Exactly. But speaking of wagers, I have another topic that involves possibly the nerdiest bet in history. I think a paladin sorcerer cross class would probably be. Is that not is that not the, <laughs> that, that, is that so, not what we're talking that, about? Because it has to do with uh, synergistic ability scores. Sorcerer's casting stat is charisma, and then paladins get to add that charisma modifier to all of their saving throws, creating an almost unstoppable meat tank that casts spells. Yeah, we're going to cut that out because it's so nerdy. I don't understand a fucking word. Ah, I don't understand a word you just said. I can't believe I said that. We're not going to. I'm going to cut the F word out because I do not want to have it, an F word in this. Really? Podcast. But uh, well, do you want me to um, teach you that? Yeah. Do you want me to te- teach you the Elvish word for fuck? No, I don't think so. You don't want another Elvish <laughs> word for fuck? <laughs> if you say it again in the mirror, uh, elf will appear. And fuck. <laughs> All right. This bet, it was actually uh, a topic was suggested to us from my college advisor, who is a loyal listener to the show kevin i really appreciate the support uh just just for the record i too appreciate the support kevin possibly more than matt oh there's no way there's no way i i I just want to make sure that we're we're keeping this competitive in fact i would bet you i would (laughs) bet you that i appreciate your college advisor more that sounds like a bet he would have to settle um but anyway um so i don't know what you're doing i'm making jerk off motions i don't like it that's why i didn't (laughs) like it It's a, it's a visual gag, which always translates well on a podcast. <laughs> no, but um, let's get to this bet here. So the nerdiest bet in the world, right? So the year was 1980, uh, at a time where people thought the Earth was running out of resources, specifically precious natural resources. And Simon, the economist, uh, who passed away, sadly, in 1998, uh, he posited that human ingenuity and cooperation would always come up with substitutes or alternative uh, resources if needed. Uh, and thus the human race would never really run out of 
key materials to make cool stuff from. And in contrast, Ehrlich, who was a population biologist, he contended that overpopulation and excessive uh, consumption, just people using stuff, they were already facing shortages of of this key materials and that this trend would continue as a global population increases. So essentially he's arguing Malthusian economics, which is which is the idea that as the population grows and resources dwindle, conflict is more likely. I'm glad you bring up Malthusian. I almost didn't because I didn't think I was going to be so esoteric, but I think Ehrlich would be considered a neo-Malthusian. Oh. Yeah, so a, a, a neo-Malthusian. All right, well, I'm a post-neo-Malthusian. So I'm a uh, I'm a post-post-neo-Malthusian. I'm post-Malone neo-Malthusian. I'm, a, I'm an anti-post-neo-Malthusian. Um, <laughs> I feel like that like cancels it out, right? It's like some sort of math equation. Something like that. <laughs> so Simon, again, the economist, he thought, no way, Jose. Uh, and they placed a bet on the prices of five common metals commodities that are used in construction and technology. Uh, they are copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten. Uh, Ryan, do you know what tungsten, uh, do you know one application of tungsten? Can you name an application of tungsten? Oh, it's used in a lot of alloys. That's true, but that is not what I'm thinking of. Uh, it is a chemical symbol W. Uh, when you look at a light bulb, the metal that kind of looks like a W in the light bulb, that is tungsten. Yeah, filament. Yeah, so the chemical symbol is W, and that's what a B- minus in high school chemistry gets you. <laughs> uh, but, um... <laughs> so the, uh, the idea is that if the price of these materials goes up, then that is a reflection of greater difficulty to accomplish human goals. And if the price goes down, then that's a reflection that these materials have become less valuable and therefore replaced by newer materials. So I think this really has to do with looking at the world with a framework. I think the biologist comes from a certain framework and so does the economist. And so and I think that the distinction between the two is really important. From the biologist standpoint, they're looking at biological determinism and then the economist is essentially betting on human ingenuity. Yeah, absolutely. Coming from a population biologist point of view. So let's take a population. You have deer in a forest, a monsoon comes, grows a lot of grass, you know, uh, a bunch of deer come to the forest, to the meadow, they gorge themselves on grass. Deer do what deer do when there's a bunch of them around and they have a population explosion and you cross a Rubicon where their population is so high that the resources are being dwindled, the grass and the population collapses, right? Or, uh, so this is happens. basically what happened to the hippies in the late 60s. There was an explosion of grass. They consumed that <laughs> grass. They had a population explosion. And then the, biologi- uh, the biological factors that govern hippie population eventually broke down. And they became uh, middle class suburbanites. No, they definitely went to law school, sold out and became partner at a law firm. OK, boomer. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting you bring up the 60s because Paul Ehrlich, uh, he wrote a 1968 best-selling book called The Population Bomb uh, that was very popular. He wasn't he went on the Johnny Carson. So 20. Wow. Um, uh, but he bet the he bet that the prices would skyrocket uh, because of competition or resourcage. So my, I guess my I, I guess my question is, what factors are is he tagging for humanity? So generally, you know, human population growth has been influenced not by natural, not by natural causes, but by human manipulation, basically the economist's point of view. From the economist's point of view, human ingenuity is actually driving the population growth. You have the agricultural revolution about 12,000 years ago. Prior to that, there's about 80, 90, depending on who you ask as far as the, the, the rise of modern humans, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 100, years to 200,000 years 
of human populations just kind of wandering around eating nuts and roots and shit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So really, it's human ingenuity that's driving the population growth. So in some respects, although that doesn't necessarily prove that we break free of biological predetermination, it does show that human beings can influence that system and, and alter that system in a meaningful way. No, yeah. So I think when you're talking about population explosions and the agricultural revolution, I mean, just this, you know, factory farming really did lead to a population explosion in cities. Right. So I think I think I think it's interesting. So Paul Simon, Paul Ehrlich, Paul, Paul Simon is down at the schoolyard with Julio. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Simon is the economist again. According to him, if the world demands more oil, a, a resource that is finite, right, uh, the price of oil will go up. And there'll be an there'll be an incentive to find more affordable oil. And I think the interaction humans have with markets and regular cooperation sets humans apart from the rest of the animal kingdom that the biologist Ehrlich is not really taking into account. Well, I, I think it's possible to hold both views simultaneously because there's no evidence that human beings have escaped biological determinism. Like we've, yeah. we've not completely broken through and developed the technology to completely rewrite reality or to master ecological systems. So I think if we're getting to the root question of this, we're examining either of their claims. I think that the answer lies somewhere in the middle and far in the future of the unknown. This is true, but the bet has a winner and a loser because they bet over the prices of these five commodities over the over the next over the next decade. Okay, so who won the bet? Spoiler alert, the economist, because the prices of these five metals went down by an average of 50 percent in that 10 year span at a time when the global population increased 800 million. Okay. It's really interesting, but I think Ehrlich, the biologist, he was so committed to the game that he started a zero population growth movement. And he actually got a vasectomy to set an example because he was so worried that the human population was just going to cause mayhem and destruction. And what happened to those poor deer on the meadow is what's going to happen to us. But what he wasn't going to do was stop fucking. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. He's um, it's funny. It's funny. He went on a Johnny Carson. So 20 times. So he probably had a lot of opportunity to do so. I would imagine he was pulling tail, whatever, whatever his tail of preference was. He was there like, hey, did you see me on Johnny Carson last night? And then he'd adjust his big fat tie. <laughs> I haven't seen the Johnny Carson show in years. That's because it's been off the air since the early 90s. Yeah, but that makes sense. That makes sense. In October 1990, Simon found a check in his mail for $576.77. There was no note. <laughs> yeah, but how much tungsten can you buy with that? <laughs> I think that the uh, the premise of the bet, while public and, and kind of interesting, and it, it definitely invites discussion. I don't think it's a good bet to determine the survivability of humanity. Absolutely. Yeah. Or whether the environmental determinism is going to is going to destroy us before human ingenuity destroys us. No, I agree. I think that's a better question. How much how much nuclear fissile material was produced during that period is a better measure of whether or not human uh, humanity is going to survive through technology. Or how much has the global temperature increased? I think that is a really good proxy. That's a good one, too. You want to make a bet? <laughs> well, it's well, it's interesting. Yeah, no, not really, because we're all we're all losing that one. One thing I would say, though, is that Paul Sabin, who is a historian at Yale, he wrote about this bet and he has a really interesting point. That is that this bet really screws with the debate about environmentalism, right? Mm -hmm. Where debates are framed around the extremes. You know, one side one side warns against catastrophe. That doesn't happen. As long as catastrophe doesn't happen, you know, everything must be hunky dory. But a lot of bad stuff can still happen 
short of catastrophe, globally speaking. Yeah. And I, I think always betting on human ingenuity, there's some things that just aren't possible. Like, for example, if we absolutely have to get to another galaxy in order for humanity to survive, but we can't travel faster than the speed of light, yeah. we might not get there. You might need to enlist the help of Elon Musk, who will, you know, smoke some pot, give you a meme cryptocurrency and somehow we'll get there together. So the cool thing when you start talking about the interactions between humanity and the environment and whether or not our actions can actually change the course of the natural world, I think global warming has shown that they can. But I actually have a pretty cool question from... A place on the internet that I think has grown near and dear to us both. A place devoid of stupid questions. Oh, you must be speaking of r slash no stupid questions on Reddit. That's right. And I'm not saying that they're smart questions, but they're not stupid. It's a safe space. Yeah, that's the best we can offer right now, and it's going to have to work. It's a safe space to ask whatever you want without without fear of being judged. (laughs) Until we come along. Well, no, no, I'm not judging. I'm still not judging. (laughs) I'm saying I am. As long as as long as you keep it silent and don't say it, I am silently judging. I'm silent because I think to say it, to speak those words into being would be to violate the sanctity and the spirit of the r slash no stupid questions forum. No, I I, I can appreciate the fight club rules. With our that. question. This question actually comes from user. Chukachin China. Oh, of course, of the Beijing Chukachin Chinas of the Beijing Chukachin Chinas. Uh, the Chinese chicken, something, something, something in your finger licking. Watching X Files with the lights on. and the lights on. on. Yeah. All got value. <laughs> so the, the question here is are we slowly making better black flies and mosquitoes via natural selection by swatting and killing the slower ones? I am so happy you picked that question because I saw that yesterday and I almost picked it for myself. We are just vibing, my friend. Uh, this is this is like a real gift of the Magi moment. It's like it's like you're it's like you're inside me, but like not in a but not in a weird way. <laughs> I don't know that there's a way for that not to be weird now. <laughs> so I, I, I think it's a it's a really interesting question. Are we slowly making better black flies and mosquitoes via natural selection by swatting and killing the slower ones? And the answer to that is no. I, and I think I think actually the population biologist would have a lot to say about this. Rest in peace. <laughs> He he would. But I I, I think the key here is the level of impact that human beings have on fly and mosquito populations. We can swat flies and mosquitoes all day and never make a dent on their population, because I don't know if you know this. We're out. There are a lot of flies and mosquitoes. I think uh, insects definitely outnumber us and definitely. I mean, you know, I've been all around the world. Mosquitoes are everywhere, man. I, I grew up in Florida. You can't get away from them. I did research in, in Kenya. You can't get away from them. I, I, I got drunk in Tanzania. I got I mean, and I feel like I'm just like giving you my resume now, but they're everywhere is what I'm trying. I to think say. you're I, I think you're hump. I think you're bragging. No, about I'm, your, yeah, your, your, I, your, I, I feel bad about that. And I don't want to. So I I've seen a bunch of mosquitoes. Right. Let's just leave it at that. But okay. uh, no, I, I, I will say this before we get into this. I think if there were one species in the world where I could push a button or snap my fingers and they would go away. Humans. No, 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 oh. no. It would definitely be the mosquito because yeah, mosquitoes. Of, the, of the malaria that they carry that has just wreaked havoc all around the world, especially in the tr- tropical parts. I, I say that kind of reluctantly 
because we don't know the implications of getting rid of entire species. I would point out that mosquitoes can't give malaria if you press the button and get rid of humans. Yeah, but you essentially cure malaria. Yeah, but if but I <laughs> well, not maybe not. There's probably, there's probably, some, probably some other mammals, maybe some primates that would get malaria. I would make I would imagine just a bunch of delirious chimpanzees. What a great band name. Hey, next on the main stage, delirious chimpanzees. I think bonobos would sound better like delir- like uh, we're going to go see the cold sweat bonobos. I like it. I like it. I don't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the the key here is that in any given population of creatures, in order for natural selection to take effect, you actually have to create a genetic bottleneck by creating a selective pressure. So it might be it might be a temperature change and only the creatures that can survive the temperature change are going to go, go on to reproduce. But an isolated swatting is not going to do that. No, absolutely. The way I understand evolution, which, again, is, you know, not not a biologist, but the way I understand it is. So there needs to be a genetic mutation and that mutation has to give some sort of advantage relative to the rest of the population that does not have that mutation. If there's a mutation that has no advantage, then that doesn't get carried on into the into the the future generations. Right. Yeah, I think the. The general consensus here is that human beings are not providing enough selective pressure through swatting. That said, if you get into some of the solutions that they're using for mosquitoes now with CRISPR genes. Oh, CRISPR's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. CRISPR is crazy. So essentially what they're doing is they are releasing genetically engineered mosquitoes to breed into the population. And those genetically engineered mosquitoes, I I think they only produce fertile male offspring, but infertile female offspring. So what happens is a male mosquito mates with a female mosquito. The mosquito that female mosquito lays eggs. All the males are fertile. All the females are infertile. And now the males go on to breed only with fertile females. Interesting. Huh? That's really some that's like the mixture of Jurassic Park and Black Mirror, I feel like. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. So then those mosquitoes have babies and those females are sterile and the males are go on to breed with fertile females. So that way, every generation, there, there are literally no females. And in areas where they've employed this methodology, they've seen decline in uh, mosquito populations of up to, I think it was 96%. Feel free to Google and fact check me, people. It's a Reddit question. We're not putting that much fucking heart into it. <laughs> Since you bring up CRISPR, I think we should tell people that CRISPR is an acronym. It stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. And it's essentially a way to edit genes. And actually, it's been used once on human Humans, a, uh, a researcher in China edited the genes of another human and the entire international community like was horrified. And they're like, this should not be happening quite yet. The possibilities are CRISPR are pretty amazing. I look forward to our Gattaca like future. Yeah, I think I think the possibilities are amazing if we can get rid of mosquitoes. <laughs> I think the possibilities are amazing if we can get rid of class divides, because otherwise you're going to have rich people oh, re-engineering yeah. themselves to be immortal and immune to disease. And poor people are just going to have to suck it. Yeah, it's, well, it, it, it can be like that or it's going to be like, well, I want to make sure my baby has blue eyes and is like a, a musical savant. It's going to be a whole bunch of people with genetically engineered blue eyes and six fingers for their piano practice <laughs> behind the wheel of, a, of self-driving cars and mowing down children who don't have six fingers for piano lessons. Call that the six finger discount. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, long story short. No, there are other species out there that have a greater selective pressure, but human technology is catching up to bats. 
Bats, by the way, the only mammal that flies. So, you know, we should definitely preserve that species, if anything else, for the wonder of that. Yeah, and they're delicious. I've never had it. Neither have I. I'm just guessing because they're animals and they're delicious. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I've never eaten an animal that wasn't delicious. Oh, I definitely have. <laughs> And speaking of evolution, I think you have a good topic about how humans and Americans have evolved handwriting. Yeah. So the the last topic I wanted to cover today is based on a meme that I saw, which is a piece of notebook paper. And then in a, a cursive script, it says, share if you think children should learn to write cursive. Think of that's what it says. I'm not using a reference document here. No, it, uh, it, this it, is really a poorly researched and presented show in a lot of ways. Well, I would say that um, when people share anything on Facebook, they hardly read it. So I think it's it, 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 it fits the it fits the medium is what I'm trying to say. Right. And the, the claims I wanted to get to actually weren't in the meme itself. So getting the exact wording of the meme is kind of irrelevant because yeah. it was the comment section that's really driving me today. Okay, let's hit it. What I thought was interesting were they were two arguments and they're very closely related. One, kids need to learn cursive so they can read historical documents. And then the second argument was that they needed to know their rights and they had to be able to read the Constitution. So they're they're really closely linked. But I wanted to address both of them individually because I think that it creates an interesting scenario that is worth addressing. No, I think I think it's totally worth addressing. I think it's very it's very interesting. And I think. The fact that we are not learning cursive anymore is a liberal conspiracy to have people not know what their rights are. That's right. And you're never going to be able to sign a check or buy a home yeah, or sign anything in your life. Yeah. Signature, right? That's weird because they, they're having no trouble cranking out student loans and have no and have no trouble like inflating housing prices right now. It's kind of crazy. The first point that I'd like to make is that cursive writing is not a uniform concept. Cursive writing is a type of script, not a specific script. Yeah, yeah. Languages going back to ancient times have cursive forms or short cursive or shorthand forms. The idea of a cursive, basically, you're linking letters together through connections and joins that make it easier to write without lifting your implement off of the surface. If you're writing with a quill, which is easily broken, you're less likely to break that quill if you're writing in cursive than if you're writing in manuscript. That makes sense. I also think it probably it saves time, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So cursive cursive is faster than manuscript. And in fact, uh, up until the invention of the typewriter was the standard for business documents. Hmm. Interesting. You should point that out because I learned this fun fact about cursive. Uh, almost one hundred million dollars in tax refunds aren't delivered annually because of unreadable tax forms. Oh, so that's kind of. Crazy. Yeah, that is. That is kind of crazy. Yeah. Recognizing that historically cursive scripts aren't uniform over time. And let's assume that we're talking about a modern American population, since those are the people that are commenting on Facebook. <laughs> there's sort of an assumption. It's like I can read cursive. Yeah. But there's actually more than one cursive script in 21st century America. Yeah, I think that, 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 that that's surprising to me. And I think it's surprising to a lot of people out there. There are four main cursive scripts that are extant today. The first one and the oldest of the ones that I'm going to talk about is the Spencerian script. It's kind of a loopy, oval-esque style. Uh, you'll recognize it from like the Ford logo or the Coca-Cola logo. Oh, OK, gotcha. Yeah. Think about the, the cursive writing that you and I probably learned in elementary school. I know I learned it. I can't speak for you, but that's very different than Coca-Cola. You don't write the Coca-Cola script. 
they didn't teach us the Coca-Cola script, and I really they didn't teach you the Coca-Cola script. I really wish they had. And also, I think teaching the cola Coca-Cola script would be the most American thing ever in like a school in Georgia, right? <laughs> where so, where Coca-Cola <laughs> is headquartered, they're they're headquartered in, in Atlanta. So Spencerian script was developed in 1840 and was the go-to script for American legal and business documents from about 1850 to 1925. I mean. It's a little bit more complex than what you and I are used to. And that's because other methods were developed for similar purposes. There's the Palmarian method, which was developed around 1888, and it was marketed towards uh, school education. So they were teaching children this. It was a highly regimented script. So the idea was like, boom, 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 boom. You're knocking out your letters. The idea here was to have handwriting that was quick, efficient, regimented, and good for teachers who are wrapping the knuckles of their children with sticks. I feel like that boom, 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 boom just puts the image of like someone just like writing in cursive, storing some cocaine, going back and writing more cursive. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. We got to get it done, guys. <laughs> uh, so developed actually simultaneously with the Palmarian method. There's also the Zaner Blozer method. Oh, that blow that blows the Billy Zaner Blozer method. <laughs> Basically, it started off as a penmanship school that ends up turning into the Zaner Blozer Company, and they produce coursework and publishing materials for handwriting and illustration. So they they competed with the Palmarian method and ultimately went out after the 1950s. Then there's the Danelian method, which is actually what I was taught in elementary school. And the Danelian method is based on the Palmer, uh, the Palmer method. However, it starts off with a modified non-cursive manuscript. Oh, okay. Like a D with like a little monkey tail at yeah, the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's Danielian manuscript, and the idea is to create a progression, so that way they're not learning new letters. They're learning. They're basically just connecting the letters they already know, so that way children aren't learning uh, manuscript and then a, a, and then a cursive script separately. Interesting. Okay, I, mean, I think that maybe saves time in the classroom. I would imagine. Right. So those are our extant scripts. But if you go back before 1850, like to documents like the Constitution, which was ratified in 1781 or the Declaration of Independence from 1776. There are various systems of cursive at the time. None of those are being taught today. The question I have is, are they teaching cursive in schools at all today? It varies by state. Although deep in the no spin zone, (laughs) uh, cursive has been eradicated by the socialist governments of various states. Yeah, the ones on the coasts, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 totally a culture war thing. I would say, though, uh, as we get more as as we technologically advance, penmanship kind of has less value, I would say. Pretty much every modern cursive script that would be taught in a school is not the same that these documents would have been written in. That said, for people who can read a cursive script, these documents are still intelligible when you look at them. Yeah, yeah, because it's still the same 26 letters of the alphabet. And once you figure out what those 26 letters look like, you can figure you you know what you're reading. Yeah. So I would argue that it's not that hard to learn how to read cursive if you have a reason to read cursive. Well, it's it's also way easier if you already know English in the English alphabet. Yeah. And then the other factor is not all historical documents are written in modern American English. Right. right. In order to learn anything prior to, say, uh, the 16th century, you'd have to start getting into like Middle English and Old English, uh, not to mention any of the other languages. Yeah. 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 So this idea that you would need to be able to read cursive in order to read historical documents fails on that point. But it also fails on the point that since the invention of the Gutenberg printing press, people really haven't worked with handwritten historical documents. 
So I was previously employed by the University of Pennsylvania's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology on their ore digitization project. Ore is an ancient site located in southern Iraq. It was excavated about 100 years ago by a guy named Leonard Woolley as part of a joint operation between the University of Pennsylvania and the British Museum. All of his catalog cards are handwritten in cursive. So in addition to variations of cursive systems, there's also variations of individual hand. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think Um, I think whenever I try to read cursive from someone from today, I often have problems with that because of the variation between people's penmanship. Right. And a lot of people today aren't practiced. They're not using cursive every single day. I, I feel like I haven't used it since high school. So in order to demonstrate the folly of this assertion, I've created a little exercise for oh, us. Oh, good. Uh, if you look at our episode notes, you will find a catalog card from the Ur Digitization Project and the Ur Excavation. Okay, I see it. All right. I would like you to read that cursive script. This is a real world exercise of Matt encountering a historical document written in cursive. I feel like um, this is how everyone finds out I'm illiterate, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I see two silver bracelets uh, is like the title over the right. It says V8013. And then it says made of, oh man, third letter, made of something, something of wire to uh, something is attached. I don't even know what that is. It looks almost like a, I don't know. Uh, this is hard. Uh, on a year of silver and peffy cartooning, uh, Koleshi, and then the equal sign. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's going off the rails really quick. Now, I'm going to demonstrate proficiency because I've encountered this script many times. I started off with the same difficulty that you just encountered looking at this card for the first time, except that I overcame that over time through context, uh, through context clues and repetition. Okay. So I know that this says two silver bracelets, U8013. That's a U. I made, thought it was a V. It's a U, yeah. Made of three twists of wire to one of them is attached by corrosion, an object of silver apparently containing a cockle shell. Okay. The cockle shell has in it green pigment and was covered by a silver shell in parentheses broken. OK, so I'm not going to read the rest of the card, but you get the idea. It also has a, it also has a diagram of uh, a cock shell, cockle shell. Cockle shell. Okay. Uh, cockle shell. Gotcha, yeah, gotcha. you can see my point here. It's unfamiliar at first, but uh, through repetition and exposure, I was able to decode what this actually says. As you were reading it, I was kind of following along and I, I kind of felt bad that I didn't realize it, I didn't recognize the number three or the word corrosion, because I, I as I'm looking at it now, it, it I think something just clicked. I, I will never not see that, you know. Right. It's kind of interesting, but I think it also blows up the notion that, you know, if we don't teach kids how to write in cursive in elementary school, they're never going to be able to read historical documents. Most historical documents aren't handwritten anymore. And even if they come across a historical document with a little bit of time and attention and context, they'll probably figure it out. Yeah, I think that the argument that if you don't learn cursive, you can't learn about our history is just a, something you'd hear on Tucker Carlson. Yeah, and it's absolutely a culture war point, And it is the exact sort of dog shit argument that you and I made this podcast to address. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do have a little personal connection to cursive, uh, if I may indulge uh, you. This is something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. I think cursive absolutely has helped people with learning disabilities, uh, like dyslexia. In print, letters can look similar, like the B and the D. But cursive looks different than print, and those letters look different. 
And it kind of gives a student another option, one that would likely decrease their dyslexic tendencies, in turn making them more confident. And I think for that reason alone, I think it should stay in schools. Studies have shown that cursive writing can be beneficial to children who have dyslexia. However, there's another condition called dysgraphia where it actually hurts their ability to read. That's got to be way less common than dyslexia. It's way less common than dyslexia. I I think it's a fair argument, but I think that's a topic that could perhaps be taught in a speech therapy or in a tutor scenario. I don't think it's necessary for all the children to learn all the cursives. I don't care one way or another. They got plenty of fucking time on their hands at school. (laughs) In between eating Tide Pods. (laughs) Yeah, this is this is honestly even having this argument is kind of a waste of time. But that's why we started a podcast, because we had too much time on our hands and we were tired of arguing with people on Facebook. I'm always looking for new and creative ways to waste my time. And so this is just the next iteration of that. (laughs) And that's where you, our listener, come in. If you see something on the Internet that is too stupid, too good to be true, too hard to believe or just otherwise questionable, Go ahead and send it to us. You can find us at wreckyourpod at gmail.com or at wreckyourpod on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Yes, I I converted my personal TikTok to Wreck Yourself. We are at Wreck Your Pod. Go give me a follow. All right. I wanted to also take a moment to recognize the very important contributions of Rick Reynolds. Big fan. I am possibly his biggest fan. I was wearing... I was wearing his concert tee earlier today, but I had to take it off because I, do- I dropped guacamoles on it. Mm, well, that sounds hot. Uh, I, I, I also thank Rick Reynolds for the use of his song United from the album Portals in Progress. Do you know where you can find that, Matt? On Apple iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify. Just, just where you can find our podcast. And we also have a Facebook group and a Facebook page, so make sure you're following both. Yeah, there's lots of ways to keep up with what we've been wasting our time doing. Anyway, if you find yourself between now and when next we meet, staring at something on the internet, wondering if you should click that share button, and you don't have time to wait until our next episode, which drops every Tuesday morning, make sure you check yourself. Don't wreck yourself. Please.